0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
1: Welcome to the Cynica Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with Sup China. China offers a feast of business, political and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We're coming to you this week from the studios of the Council on Foreign Relations here in Manhattan. I'm Kaiser Guo, joined of course by Jeremy Goldcorn aka Ugly Gorilla. How are you? 你这个丑陋的大猩猩. <laughs> Thank you. I'm I'm, I'm grunting. <laughs> so, so Jeremy, do you remember back in 99? We were both here in 99 uh, or there in, in Beijing, in Beijing yeah. right? right um, when here is is always oh, forever going to refer to Beijing. I don't know, I'm, I'm not used to this idea about moving to the states yet. But um there were just a couple of million people online in in May of 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 99 and what happened after the bombing of the Chinese embassy in Belgrade, I mean you remember, there was this like nutso outpouring of online nationalism and seemingly spontaneous formation of all these groups of so-called patriotic hackers, right? Yeah. And uh, I, and I mean, offline
0: too, but yeah. yeah, yeah,
1: offline too. Of course, I'm mean, lots of people throwing rocks, but uh, y- you know, I- I've wondered what would happen today if, God forbid, there were another incident of that magnitude, say something in the South China Sea, if if that were happening again today in a China with nearly what 700 million people online and quite substantial internet infrastructure and of course immensely more powerful offensive cyber capabilities, I, I shudder to think. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, the internet has, of course, become hotly contested terrain. And two of the major players that are struggling to shape its future are, of course, the United States and China. These are two countries with very different ideas of, how the internet ought to be governed in the first place. They have great disparities in their respective interests and, of course, in their capabilities. Uh, Along with the other digital powers of the planet, Washington and Beijing are now wrestling with quite difficult issues, I think, on a very highly volatile and fast-changing
0: field where the rules are far from clear and the dangers really abound. Indeed. So today on Seneca, we are delighted to be joined by Adam Siegel, who is Morris R. Greenberg, Senior Fellow for China Studies Director of the Program on Digital and Cyberspace Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. Adam is also the author, most recently, of the book Hacked World Order, How Nations Fight, Trade, Maneuver, and Manipulate in the Digital Age. Adam Siegel, welcome to Seneca, and thank you for having us here at the CFR offices.
2: We're glad to have you here.
0: It's a swanky little place here, man. This is nice. You should see the studio we're in. This is about the fanciest studio we've ever been in, Kaiser. <laughs> yeah, probably.
1: Yeah. So uh, we're going to take over and actually record a second podcast from here today. Afterward, over there. Uh, anyway, the, Adam, I, I found these USB drives scattered just outside the entrance to the U.S. Uh, to the CFR. Maybe you should pop them open and and, and see what's on them here.
2: here. Uh, definitely. Uh, I think the last week or two weeks ago, there was a new study that came out that. Depending upon the situation, fifty to ninety percent of the people who find a uh, thumb drive will will pop it into their own computer. <laughs> Friggin' idiots. Um, but you know, you know, it's motivated partly by by wanting to do the right thing. right? you think, oh, one of my colleagues dropped their thumb drive, and if I put it in my computer, I can figure out whose it is, and I can return it to them. Yeah, no good deed.
1: Um, uh, the, the book is an excellent, very in-depth exploration of of. of- many of the issues that most states and, of course, most companies now confront in cyberspace. And it covers everything from the Twitter wars over, over Gaza to German reactions to the Snowden leaks. But this, this is a show, of course, that's focused on China. So our chat will largely be focused on China as well. You're, you're a China guy, right? And and presumably, it was US-China cyberspace issues that got you interested in writing about what you call this hacked world order in the first place, right?
2: Uh, it was. I, I, I came to cyber because of because of China. I had Just finished a book on Chinese innovation strategy and and technology policy and how the U.S. might compete or should compete with that. And in that book, there's, I think, three paragraphs that say something like, oh, and by the way, if the Chinese steal all of our intellectual property, it's going to make competing in a global marketplace much more difficult and i finished that book and i thought huh that would be an interesting next project <laughs> and it was around the same time that the council began thinking we should be doing something in cyberspace and so that's where i've I've moved since then did, did you have a tech background at all um i've always written on technology policy but okay. i am not a tech techie uh personally all right high five that's me too <laughs>
0: Can we uh, lay down some definitions? Because it seems there's often a conflation between cyber espionage and, and cyber warfare. So let's make sure we and our listeners understand what you're talking about when you use these and other words relevant to this field.
2: Yeah, so I think that's right. I think a lot of times the press will say cyber war or cyber attack, and they'll mean lots of different things. You know, what we've seen in the US-China context is primarily cyber espionage. So The theft of data, uh, either for for political military reasons, right? So we know that the DOD has been hacked. We know numerous U.S. weapons platforms have been hacked. uh, We know the campaigns of of both President Obama and John McCain were hacked. Think tanks. So we know there's a whole lot of political uh, military espionage going on. Uh, And we also know there's lots of theft of intellectual property, business secrets, business strategies to help competitiveness of Chinese firms. What we've also seen more limited are types of cyber attacks, website defacement, uh, what are called distributed denial of service attacks, knocking some websites offline. Those tend to be directed at dissidents, Tibetan activists, Taiwanese activists, GitHub, GitHub, uh, and others who are engaged in political action that the PRC might not like.
1: So I had gotten a few chapters in your book, and we were exchanging emails to set up this recording session, and I wrote to you at one point, Adam, I'm very much enjoying the book. Not sure if enjoying is the right word, but it's certainly edifying and frightening and very nicely told. Frightening is, of course, the word that stands out, and, and you start scaring the reader out of his pants right away, right out the gate, talking about Stuxnet and in what you call year zero. Uh, what is significant about th- this time that roughly goes from, you know, mid-2012 to mid-2013. And, and what qual is that is that the right, is that the 2013 to 14?
2: Yeah, June 2012 to 12. June 2013 is what I call year zero. And, 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 you know, and why why year zero? You know, I, I think it was really the death of the utopian vision that the internet was going to be this place where individuals were radically empowered and the states were going to find themselves flat-footed and unable to respond. And what we saw that you know, states really, really uh, very quickly and powerfully reasserted their authority and sovereignty uh, into cyberspace. The June 12, 2012 uh, is the leak about Stuxnet. Stuxnet itself happened in 2008, 2009. It was the attack uh, on the centrifuges in Natanz in an attempt to slow the Iranian nuclear program. June 2013... Uh, is a nice month because both you have the summit between President Xi and President Obama and President Obama raises the cyber espionage issue. But more dramatically, you have the Snowden. um, You have Snowden shows up in Hong Kong, which really shows that, you know, the U S, even though it had been promoting this narrative of a free and open global internet had been involved in a whole range of issues that undermine a lot of the security.
1: It was the year of Evgeny Morozov
0: also, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, that uh, brings a sort of interesting question. I mean, you write China spies, Russia spies, the United States, however, may be the far- farthest reaching, most invasive and in- accomplished spy of the great powers. Um, so given that, you know, how does America find moral grounds for condemnation of the actions of other states?
2: Uh, I you know I think it's it's an important point to remember is that we from the press right we see oh, China hacks this and China hacks that but we never hear what's outgoing from the U.S. right Snowden was the only discussion about that but you know even before the Snowden revelations my counterparts and the people I spoke to in Beijing their basic assumption was that the U.S. had penetrated it all into all their networks and I had never reason to believe that that wasn't true that the the U.S. has a pretty far reaching vision uh, into what's going on in China. I think the U.S. has tried to create this distinction between good hacking and bad hacking. It turns out that the good hacking is the hacking the United States is good at and the bad hacking is the hacking that the Chinese (laughs) tend to be good at. So good hacking is the theft of political and military secrets, right? And we saw what the OPM hack, the hack of the um, Office of Personal Management that were 22 million federal records were stolen – that we the US government thinks that that probably was a Chinese uh, action for counterintelligence reasons and DNI Director of National Intelligence Clapper basically said you know I tip my hat to the Chinese like, that's the kind of thing This I is w- good hacking yeah. this is what this I is, would this do This is what, if I could do this I would I would do the same thing the bad hacking is the hacking of um for, for intellectual property and to help the the competitiveness of of individual firms you know, up until the September 2015 summit between President Xi and President Obama, we had, the United States government had gone, had really very little success in in establishing that there was a norm. There's a difference between those types of hacking. You know, a number of U.S. allies engage in uh, IP theft. We know the South Koreans do it. We know the French do it. The Israelis do it. So it, we hadn't gotten very far in establishing that norm. And I and I think most people didn't think that the U.S. was going to get very far with China. So the fact that President Xi agreed to this norm, seems to be a sort of progress. Uh, even though to say that you're not going to do something that you say you've never done before is a, <laughs> is a difficult kind of question.
1: There must have been it must have been a hard distinction to sell, though. I mean, this idea when 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 first tabled, I mean, I, I my sense was that pe- most people sort of scoffed at at this idea of drawing a distinction between the, the stuff that everyone does and 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 uh, and it's not like the United States is is entirely free of, of industrial style espionage either,
2: is it? Or is it just... No, I think you know that was the other problem, right? The US was trying to, would, was trying to draw a very narrow distinction because what the Snowden disclosures also showed was that the US was targeting economic targets, right? They uh, hacked into Huawei, they hacked into telecom companies within inside of China, the negotiators for the EU for trade deals and the US's argument was well, we do that for national interest, not to help specific companies. I I think that's a distinction that is uh, not really accepted in the rest of the world. And and most countries, most people in the rest of the world probably have no reason to believe that the U.S. is not doing what it says it's not doing. I think the only reason why you would believe it is because it's very hard to imagine in a U.S. political and legal context how the U.S. could steal intellectual property and give it to one company, right? right, And not having to turn around and all the other companies suing them and saying, we want it to. Most favored
1: nations. (laughs) let's talk a little briefly about Russia. I mean, Russia seems to have been particularly aggressive over the last decade or so. In 2007, in Estonia, over the whole controversy of the removal of a statue of a Soviet soldier in Tallinn, you write about that. And in 2008, in Georgia, during the Olympics, when they, they did that their little dance into there. And again, in Ukraine, after Euromaidan in 2014. So given the kind of legendary capabilities of Russian hackers and its evident willingness to mobilize them for state ends, why doesn't... Russia qualify in your book as a, a cyber superpower?
2: I think the Russians are, are third, quite honestly, because they are such skilled hackers. Um, you can see actually, uh, it was perhaps last year that both Admiral Rogers and the director of national intelligence, Clapper, basically said, when we think about who gives us the most worry, it's actually the Russian hackers. They're, they're more skilled. I think the the problem for Russia is that they don't really have a long game, right? And that if you think about cyber power as also developing the technologies that undergrid the internet and information and communication te- technologies, there there aren't any Russian players, right? The only company we talk about these days really in Russia is Telegram, right, which is an encrypted messaging service. But the Chinese, their goal is to compete with and, and perhaps replace Western US technology at every level from the chip up to the actual internet itself. And so... It's still, They're still not there, but if you wanted to, you could think about replacing Windows with Kylin and IBM with Inspur and uh, Cisco with Huawei and Apple with Xiaomi. Uh, you can't do that with, with Russia. Right, you've got Yandex and that's yes. about it. Right? Yandex with the phone with the two sides on it, I guess. <laughs> it had
0: <laughs> so uh, how would you characterize China's operational capability in, in, in things, cyber? You know, I think they on on the offensive
2: side are clearly persistent and are willing to throw a lot of resources at the problem. You don't hear a lot about how skilled they are, so I think the the quality is still pretty low. Uh we have to assume that, that defense is pretty bad. They the r- official writings in China seem very worried about it. They're, they're worried about dependence on US technologies and backdoors and and other ways of getting in. I think you can look at the the founding of the of the small leadership group by by Xi Jinping on cybersecurity, mm-hmm. uh, and the creation of the CAC of the Cyberspace Administration of China. All signs is that bureaucratically it wasn't working right. Right, you create leadership groups when you have massive bureaucratic problems, you have coordination problems, and we know that cybersecurity as a policy issue was divided between. M-I-I-T. MIT, yeah. the PLA, the MSS, the MPS, the State Encryption Bureau. And so there was clearly a, 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 a need to uh, break some of that bureaucratic logic. And
1: now that it's all under CAC and the small group under C, uh, do, do you see substantial progress? <laughs>
2: I don't know how much progress we see, but I, do, I think we do see um, a, a notable... Uh, The policy seems more energized, Uh uh so I think you know. Look, from we've in the in the past we've seen Chinese the Chinese try to replace Western technology, right? And they would say, "This we want to either for indigenous innovation reasons or security reasons, we want to remove this this Western technology, whatever it might be." And in the past, you could you could expect pushback from a lot of Chinese companies uh, or the ministries, right? The Ministry of Finance would say, yeah, of course, we want to put INSPUR in, but we're not sure about the security, and our customers insist that, you know, we maintain the highest level of security, so we're not we're not going to do it, right? Or we're just going to drag our feet on it. But I think with the small leadership group and the idea that this is all coming from Xi Jinping, you can't do that any longer. Right. right, right, right. You have to say, all right, we're going to go ahead and, and go forward with it.
0: Can, can I ask, I mean, why, why do you think the the capacity is still weak. I mean, you know, if you look at the commercial sector, uh, Chinese technology and internet firms ha- have got to the stage where, I mean, they're mature. They are building products that rival those of Silicon Valley. So wh- what's what's the cause of the weakness?
2: Well, I, I think partly there has... I, th- I think the Chinese manufacturers still lag behind on product innovation. I think clearly on... Um, process and service innovation that that is where the cutting edge has been. I also think look the US manufacturers aren't that good at getting security right the first time. But there is more experience in integrating and legacy systems which is a big problem right because when you you can't just pull something out. You can't pull Cisco out and then put uh, Huawei in right away and not create a whole set of other problems um, that you have when you have a whole system in place. Mm. You know, I th- I think they're moving up the chain. I think it, uh, it is now more of reality than it, than it was before. And I think that's why they feel comfortable doing it. Let's contrast that with American capabilities. I mean, uh, you write quite a bit about
1: this, how the NSA, for example, has allegedly stockpiled quite a number of zero days of of exploits that haven't been deployed yet and, and that nobody knows, knows anything about. For you specifically against China, like some 2000 zero days. <laughs> that's, that's awfully, it's got to put a quake in Beijing's boots. Um, and of course, you talk about, and I mean, this, this really kind of blew me away. This, this, um, equation group that Kaspersky discovered, which you think looks very much like the work of the NSA, um, that can actually put spyware in, in, you know, in hard drives manufactured by major manufacturers. I mean, you know, we're, we're talking about Seagate and Toshiba and, and that <laughs> that that seems pretty uh, hard to hard to touch
2: yeah i think um look this is a this has been a a home game for the united states across so many different um standards right not only because the manufacturers and the software companies tend to be American, and and they're developing the standards. Uh, But also because so much internet traffic, backbone traffic goes through the United States that it's had so much access to it. I think, you know, the NSA has had significant budgets and it has been incredibly creative and expansive in its vision about what it wants wants to do. Uh, So I don't think that there is much doubt that the U.S., You know, has significant capabilities and a willingness to use them. You know, the issue, I think, is have we reached the zenith? Is this about, is the U.S. going to get stronger in in cyberspace or is it going to get weaker? And I, I think this is probably the zenith. I think in part because everyone woke up and realized how the game looked rigged. For U.S. business and national security interest, I think in part because the Snowden revelations are driving uh, U.S. tech companies away from the from Washington and what Washington, the direction Washington hopes to push. I think there's real talent issues, right? It used to be that if you were a skilled hacker, uh, NSA was the place to go because they had the coolest tools. Mm-hmm. That is still probably true, but you know these days Google has pretty cool tools, and so does Facebook, and they can pay you four times as much. Uh, right so it's harder to, for the government I think to get the people that it needs.
1: So let's talk about recent Chinese hacking attacks that have been exposed the FBI's indictment for example of of this guy Su Bin a Chinese national who was living in Canada and who was supposed to have delivered plans for the uh, the C seventeen, this big Boeing transport, and for the F twenty two and the F thirty five for whatever those are worth, the stealth fighter plans. And you know, there's the five Chinese hackers. I made a, a joking reference to 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 ugly gorilla. There were a number of of them that the DOJ actually charged with espionage, um, and who were themselves PLA members of I can't remember the the, the unit number or something six one nine six one and then of course the opm hack that we talked about. So China's usual response is, you know, oh we're the victim here, but you know, they 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 they're the perp too. So let's talk about what what we've discovered about Chinese actual hacks.
2: Yeah, it was it was actually interesting in the in the case of Subin as you mentioned, you know, indicted uh, arrested in Canada and then uh, brought to the United States and he he pled guilty. Right. Right. And the the Subin hack is interesting because when you read the emails that the the Department of Justice released when he's communicating with the guys that did the hacking, you get a very kind of complicated, nuanced view of who the hackers are. Uh, and it's unclear if they're operating uh, on their own uh, personal desire to make money or if mm-hmm. they're operating to help, you know, AVIC or some other Chinese state or organization because they clearly are applying for the job. So there's an early set of emails where they say, oh, we've broken into uh, U.S. defense companies before – Oh, and we've also hacked into Tibetan activists and democracy activists, and we, you know, we these are our skill set. They never make clear on whose and they didn't say on active. whose behalf. Uh, and then, but when they suggest how successful they were, they kind of give one metric is um, how quickly they did it, and what they stole, and what the value was, and what that would save a Chinese company in R and D costs. But they always end by saying, and this will help the motherland, right? It helped the motherland in its national security goals and its modernization goals. So they. they is that boilerplate or is that sincere? It's a, it's, and you can't really tell. It, it's, a, it's very hard to tell, right? right. It, it's very all intertwined and it's probably both, right? Uh, in some cases, sincere, in some cases, boilerplate. And then there are other times where Subin, they're complaining about they haven't been paid yet. Uh, and Subin says to them, you know, you guys, patience. Uh, we know AVIC, AVIC is is greedy and and uh they don't you know they don't pay very well, and so you're just gonna have to take time to do it, so you see a whole range of motivations and actions that are all there when the Global Times reported on uh subin's arrest they were they faced this problem, which is that he admitted that he had done it, <laughs> and the global Times's piece was basically like uh, we don't hack, and the, the u s is always claiming that we hack, but if Subin did it, he's a hero, um and we should support him as such because he
0: is helping you know, modernization, uh, and and the Chinese military. So but I mean, the, what I get the sense from what you're saying is we don't really know who's pulling the strings, who's paying, who's ordering these hacks. Is that is that correct?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, what the US government has said is that, you know, attribution is getting better. It's it's It used to be people always would say it's impossible to know who's behind attack. But the U.S. government has consistently over time, and in part that's what the indictments of Ugly Guerrilla and the others was about, was to say, no, no, we're getting better at attribution. But what the U.S. government is saying is, well, we can say the attack came from China. We can pretty clearly say where in China or what organization or entity we think it came from. But we can't tell you who ordered it, right? Or at least we're not willing to release those uh, that information. In the case of the Sony attack and the North Korean attack, uh, I suspect we did have intelligence. We may have had an intercepted phone call or an email that said, we want you to do this attack. But we never revealed that information. The US government never revealed it, probably because they didn't want to give up those technical means. Right.
1: I mean, because when you do name and shame, when or you, when, you, when you are too
2: explicit about how you know you've you've revealed your own capabilities. there, right? Exactly. You don't want to. You don't. You don't want to give up too much, and then have them patch or change what they're doing, and, and then they go. They go dark. And yet, name and shame. I, I know that you have some problems with it, but it
1: doesn't. It seem to have brought them to the table, brought China sort of to the table, and and to agree to some of this stuff. I mean, it, it does seem to have moved or changed changed the game a bit. I
2: think um, what name and shame did was. Uh, convinced the Chinese that the U.S. government was serious about it. Because mm-hmm. I think for the U.S. government, let's say cyber was in the top five or maybe the top seven of issues that it wanted to address. And for Beijing, cyber was 15th, twenty, twenty-fifth, 25th, somewhere down the line. And so the constant naming and shaming slowly began to get the Chinese government's attention – I think quite honestly what brought Beijing to the table was the threat of sanctions. And the And that's the, what you
1: advocate basically.
2: I, I in certain cases, yes. I think the threat of sanctions and clearly the the idea that the Xi visit would go bad, right? You know, the the US government leaked the idea about sanctions in August. Uh, Sunnylands was scheduled for No, this is uh, this, this is post Sunnylands. This is this two, two, 2015 oh, summit, right, right, right. right? And so Xi is due in Washington in September. The summit is very important to Xi, right? This is his first, you know, major uh, summit uh, as president. And so there's a lot of incentives for, for the Chinese to make some concessions on the cyber espionage issue so that, that the, the meeting goes smoothly. Does the U.S. – the U.S. loses that leverage, right? That, that no longer exists anymore. Uh, and so the question will be, Will we, will the U.S. government be willing to follow through on sanctions if that's where it ends up? That, I think, is an open question.
0: What about Snowden? Can we talk a little about the impact of Snowden on on US China uh, yeah. cyber relations? I think what Snowden really did for US China was
2: well for for one it clearly tilted the rhetorical balance, right? So in 2010 and 2011 you had Secretary then Secretary Clinton give a series of speeches on internet freedom and about how the rights uh human rights uh, offline were the same online. And and the Chinese were very kind of in a in a hunched over and a kind of reactive position about that speech, that it was, you know, the U.S. spreading its agenda and was really directed at overthrowing the regime. And, you know, they didn't really have a – they just had negative things to say about the U.S. freedom agenda. Once Snowden happens, they can basically say, look, we, we know who the real hackers are in cyberspace. It's the United States right and they started calling the, the united states the ma- the real matrix and the real <laughs> the real evil empire and so, Gua, right? yeah so the rhetorically i think it you know clearly uh, allowed uh, beijing to shift from its back foot to to being much more forward leaning and the us really you know was 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 didn't have much to say or could not respond uh, in an effective way. I mean, they're still using Snowden today. I mean, I read in, in,
1: in an article by Paul Moser and uh, and Jane Perlez in the New York Times about how uh, China is is quietly, they, they used quietly, uh, I'm not sure if that adverb is, is appropriate, but talking to in person or conducting in-person interviews with you know members presumably in China of the eight guardians uh, the, the the big American tech companies in China uh, and and basically trying to to compel them again to you know open back doors and to uh, provide source code and, and what have you presumably in return for market access but uh, you know the agenda here is is about eventual you know it's the same cyber sort of techno nationalism
2: uh, making it difficult for them. Yeah, I mean, I think it it totally energized something that the China wanted to do already, which is, you know, we already knew with the indigenous innovation strategy about replacing uh, foreign suppliers for critical technologies. And Snowden re-energizes that because you can now do it for legitimate national security reasons. Um, and you can do lots of things that the U.S. government is doing. You can say, oh, yeah, we, we want a backdoor or we want... Uh, to block certain types of encryption, and you can, and rhetorically, uh, you're in the same position where the FBI seems to be. Right.
1: And then what about Huawei? I mean, um, th- this is this is also often invoked. It's sort of like, well, I mean, how is this any different than what you've done to Huawei?
2: Yeah, I think um, you know, as Bill Bishop, Bill Bishop, I guess, calls it Huawei'd, right? Yeah, if you're the a, passive verb like, the, to a, have been Huawei'd. And I think that's right. I think. Um, you know, there, there's, there's both the, if you're going to do this to Huawei, we're going to do it to you. And also, I think the Chinese, in many ways, what happened to Huawei was uh, illuminating for them because they thought, oh, if, if the U.S. government is so worried about uh, a Chinese technology company and what it might do in the back doors, maybe they're on to something. Right. Maybe and we ought to be worried about this too. Exactly. We should be wondering, why aren't we more worried about Cisco or Juniper or,
0: or the other thing? So, is there anything positive? I mean, can we... Can we talk a little bit about how the US and China could actually work together to prevent anything nasty happening? Uh, is that is that going on?
2: Uh, so one of the other things that came out of the Xi Obama summit was uh, an agreement with basically to have two working groups. One is on the actual cybercrime issue. Um, that, that's between the DHS and the MPS, the Ministry of Public Security. Uh, that's had one meeting. And then actually this week or last week, was the first meeting of the Cyber Experts Working Group, which is supposed to discuss state behavior in cyberspace and are there areas where we can cooperate. So normally I'm pretty pessimistic on it, but you could put a slightly more optimistic spit on it that both states uh, have a shared interest in preventing a destructive attack on, a, on critical infrastructure. right? Uh, the Chinese economy is growing increasingly dependent uh, on the Internet. Uh, the Chinese certainly don't want a major attack that slows down economic growth, given their worries about that already. And the, neither the U.S. or China want the capabilities to launch that type of attack t- to get in the hands of a non-state actor like ISIS. ISIS sure. So you can imagine some shared interest there. The problem is this become, becomes once... Once we start talking about that, then the Chinese want to talk about uh, what they call cyber terrorism, which then often bleeds into speech issues on the internet or, uh, you know, the Uyghur diaspora, the Ti- Tibetan diaspora. So as long as we can kind of push those issues to the side, I do think there are some areas where we we can cooperate. Do they have a an understanding at all about where the red lines actually are? No, I I think that's a problem, right? So, I, I think everybody agrees that an attack that that causes critical infrastructure your power grids or your your nuclear reactors to fail. Yeah, if something right. blew up or if something was killed, everybody knows that that's probably a red line. But if the if the Dow goes down for one day, is that a red line or does it have to be 3 days? Right.
1: Right. Or if I think in the example you gave if if, if a, a Midwestern bank has all of its data deleted, right? Yes. Yeah, so, that, how big that... a
2: damage to the economy does it have to be? And there, mm-hmm. I don't think we know. And it's going to be a political decision. You can imagine, uh, in some cases, the U.S. would 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 be, or the, or China could be very slow and me- methodical in figuring out what happened. But if it's, if you said earlier, if it happened, um, let's say there was an incident in the South China Sea, lots of patriotic hackers get involved, and there's lots of noise, right? People are are defacing websites, and then something happens to a bank. People are going to be a lot more jumpy than they would in mm. the first case. And are these
1: issues that need to be sorted out bilaterally or are these things that, that multinational organizations, um, the, the United Nations, I mean, is, is this something uh, that international law courts could, could come in and adjudicate on?
2: Yeah, I think it's both. Um, we know that there was an agreement at the UN, it was called the Group of Government Experts. So it's 20 experts um, representing 20 countries, including China, Russia, and the U.S., uh, and they have started to define some of the norms of cyberspace. So one of the norms they came up with is during peacetime, states shouldn't attack the critical infrastructure of another state. And that's a pretty low bar, right? <laughs> states aren't supposed to attack each other during peacetime anyway. But it's a beginning, right? It's a it's a first step. There's lots and lots of, I mean, uh, you could go to a international cybersecurity conference probably every month now. There's lots and lots of uh, multilateral discussions that are going on. Uh, and there's some important bilateral, you know, clearly the China and Russia is one, uh, China and the U.S. is one, uh, U.S. and Russia is one. Uh, the Chinese are beginning to discuss these issues with the European countries. Um, so I think it's happening in, in lots of places. It's just going to be very slow. And, and part of the problem is is that for international law and international practice to develop is you, you have to have cases. Right. right? And we don't have any cases. Before. Yeah, nobody's going to be very forthcoming about it. Nobody wants to admit their
1: vulnerabilities. Nobody else wants to reveal their offensive capabilities. And yeah, you so nobody can still
2: claim credit for Stuxnet, even though everybody Everyone knows it's right? the United States and Israel. But the U.S. government has never said, oh, yes, it was us, and these are the legal reasons that we did it or we thought we could do it. So without that, it's very hard to develop any any practices.
0: It seems uh, strange in a way that um, while sort of the the use of of military force physically is is not something nations are shy about, that they should be so reluctant to talk about something that, I mean, it doesn't always actually harm people. Yeah, there is an
2: incredibly high degree of secrecy that doesn't seem to be necessary. And I, I think part of it emerges from the sense of that anything that the U.S. can do to any other con- to any country they could do the same thing back right and so the US is even more vulnerable because we are the US is more dependent on on computer networks and so i think there's always been a fear of well if we talk about what we can do then somebody's going to get that idea and do the same thing to us but there's lots of reasons why the why the uh, opacity is is bad besides you know this kind of state international behavior it also distances, you know, one of the reasons why presidents and, you know, the, President Obama probably likes cyber is like drones and uh, special operations. There's not a lot of legislative oversight of it, right? <laughs> you can't see what's going on. You can, um, it doesn't fall under the War Powers Act. Uh, there are some loopholes in the intelligence authorizations that you can also use it. So it, it is a tool that certainly seems to increase uh, executive power. I think one of the book's real strengths, one of its chief strengths,
1: is, is that you present things without any overt American bias. And, Adam, I think you're able to actually empathize with different views, whether you're talking about, you know, European concerns over privacy, about, you know, their their whole Google phobia. And, of course, Chinese views on Internet sovereignty, which I think you have a, a kind of surprisingly nuanced view on Beijing's conviction that, that concerns over social stability, ultimately, and, and maybe they ought to trump uh, economic benefits of an open Internet. And you describe a kind of in- American Internet exceptionalism um, that the U.S. has a unique and kind of uniquely benevolent role to play. I- is that not the case? Uh, I mean, what's what's wrong with this view? Uh,
2: I, you know, I mean, if you're going to ask me my own political views, I, I, I do think there are um, strengths to be arguing for a free and open and global Internet. I guess what I'm pushing back against is the belief or the expectation that other countries are going to see it the same way. Um, And that's where I think, you know, American internet exceptionalism gets in the way. Um, I I do think the U.S. as the inventor and promoter of a global internet does have a unique role to play in promoting those values, assuming that, you know, to go back to Jeremy's point, we don't seem hypocritical given the Snowden revelations about doing it. But I also understand, and, and I think it's important to understand, why other countries wouldn't see it that way. Right.
1: I mean the, the the idea of an open internet has worked al- already, obviously to, to the end. I, I thought of as I was reading your book it's sort of like the country with the biggest uh, merchant fleet advocating for for uh, you know free and open trade. It's sort of you know Britain in in the mid nineteenth century.
2: Yeah, there's a, you know there's a long history of of looking at you know mercantilism as as a as a huge component of British colonialism, um, and so uh while i you know again i think people are made better off by a free and open internet i can i i i am trying to be empathetic and understand why if you were a leader in beijing or some other place you might have other interests economic political and cultural that make you think that this is you know this certainly is good for the united states but may not necessarily be good for us
1: yeah beijing i think very naturally sees the american position as you know with ideology and and self-interest kind of rather too neatly uh, lining up, right? I mean,
2: yeah, and I think the Chinese have consistently said, you know, everything that you promote, you frame it as a, universalist, uni- universalist, a universal value, universal yeah. value or, or a kind of universal principle. But in fact, it, it often magnifies your powers and constrains us.
0: What about uh, privacy? Can we talk a little bit about that, about how ideas about privacy seem to be culturally conditioned? Um, the right to be forgotten, uh, the problems of trying to extend the European law globally, uh, and where does China fit in uh, in the spectrum of privacy concern?
2: You know, it's a good it's a good question that I don't have a particularly deep insight on. My my sense is, given the most recent kind of dumps of data of Chinese users uh, on the web, and the, I guess this, this this dump that's continuing on Twitter, uh, is that Chinese users don't have a very high expectation either of privacy. Uh, or of data security, I, I see in the Chinese press a lot of discussions about the need to improve personal information laws and and what uh, sanctions there are on companies that leak it. And we know there've been massive breaches for users in China. But I have not seen a kind of massive reaction. And I, I think it's you know quite honestly it's it's true across the board, and users around the world have grown slightly immune to the sense of outrage
1: the expectations of it are are completely low and, and we understand why i mean you know living in china as, as i have for so long uh, there's no expectation at all of it i mean you know that everything that you you, you every time you give your phone number out it's going to be resold and, and and it's
0: it is extraordinary the day after you open a new mobile phone account you start getting apartment adverts and things yeah, it's 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 awful.
2: I mean, so I, I, I it would be interesting to hear, right? Is this if as Chinese firms globalize, globalize, right? And they and they have to do, you know, Xiaomi had the issue with data from right. Southeast Asian users, users, and where they were storing it, and were they bringing it back to Beijing, and what type of privacy they're going to have to hold on to. One of the things I've been thinking about is that as Chinese tech companies globalize. They're going to face the same, you know, issues as US and Western tech companies are, which is that, you know, is their main, their, their main concern is a global customer, right? Who's going to have different concerns about privacy. And they're going to have to, I guess, kind of figure that, that, that out. And, and in some cases, I would imagine cut against what the, the Beijing government wants
1: um back to to sort of american exceptionalism i mean part of this this whole this owes as you said to the very american early origins of of the the internet and the proto-internet the arpanet and and the iana and of course icann which replaced it uh you write that what washington and silicon valley see as efforts to fragment the web policymakers in brazil brunei china south korea switzerland and vietnam see as de-americanizing it uh How's that going?
2: Well, I, I think there's been there's been two motivations behind the efforts to store data locally. Uh, one is economic, and one is law enforcement legal. The the economic one, quite honestly, you know, there's there's not a lot of evidence that stating, storing data locally helps you economically, and there's a lot of data that actually suggests that it would hurt you. You know, I think there are countries that are still interested in it, but. I think the bigger issue has been law enforcement, right? Which is that, you know, if I'm a Brazilian judge and uh, a Brazilian, one Brazilian kills another Brazilian and planned it on Facebook, if I want that data, I have to go, you know, to Silicon Valley and ask Facebook for that data. Now, Facebook can't give it to me directly because of U.S. laws and then I have to go through a process called the MLAT process, right? The, uh, Tell us about that. So that process is, you know, how the... Uh, mutual legal assistance treaties and how a, a foreign government can ask for the technology, but that process can take ten months on average. On average, right now, so if you're a a, a Brazilian judge, you want to know why do you have to ask? You know, to go through all this process to get the data. And so we saw what happened just a couple of weeks ago when uh, a Brazilian judge basically had enough and blocked access to WhatsApp. You know, for for a day and a half. So we're going to have to figure out how do we. Solve that problem, right? How do we uh, either make, you know, there's lots of, lots of uh, suggestions out there to speed up the MLAT process. Can you, can you make it go faster? But we're still going to have a problem of competing jurisdictions, right? Because things that are illegal in uh, India or Brazil or Germany, for that matter, are not going to be illegal in the US, right? So we know, for example,
1: Les Majest laws in Thailand exactly, or, or, or Holocaust German, material exactly, right. in,
2: in Germany and France. Um, so we're going to have to figure out how we can, uh, balance different jurisdictional needs. Not, not long ago, I, I looked at what was written back in
1: 1996 by, uh, John Perry Barlow, this, this whole sort of declaration of independence of the internet. And it's just, it strikes me how quaint and kind of foolish and naive it now sounds, how, how impossible that vision was and how it's just in, in the course of just
2: 20 years, how, how our thinking has changed so much on on this. So I originally had that quote in the book, but a reviewer told me to take it out because they're like, it's it's so cliched, right? That people are always quoting that, you know... uh, you have no... You have no jurisdiction here. You have no sovereign. sovereigns of steel right, and, right. and blood. We don't want you here. <laughs> so I had that all in there. And the reviewer is like, you know what? You just take it out. Everyone's already beaten that up to yeah. death. I mean, he, I've he's seen, already disavowed it himself. Exactly. Right, he's right. disavowed it. And he says he's, he didn't really mean it in that way. And it was more <laughs> of a kind of uh, outrageous thing to say. <laughs> but yes, yeah, so, you know, that was part of what motivated the book, which is the kind of a thinking that... It didn't turn out like that. It didn't turn out anywhere no, near no, that. No. And there were early people that that saw that, right? Uh, uh, Jack Goldsmith and and Tim Wu wrote a book right, about Tim Wu, who right. governs the internet, um, and they were and they basically said, look, there are legal issues and and jurisdictional issues that are never going to go away. I mean, it should have been
1: obvious. I mean, the fiber optic cables cross sovereign borders. I mean, the, the the routers and the servers sit in sovereign territory. Well, right? it
0: was the '60s for the internet, wasn't it? Really, it was the age of right. Aquarius. So yeah. you know, people had. Uh, And I always miss this
2: quote up, but there's a futurist who basically says, you know, with any new technology, we always kind of overestimate the speed of – underestimate the speed of actual technological change and overestimate the speed of social change. Right. That's absolutely the case. So we misinterpret what's actually going to – you know, internet people would say, oh, there's only going to be 100 people on it, 100 million people or maybe 200 million people on it. So we never predicted that, you know, we're going to have half the planet over 30 years, but we also thought it was going to just change the world. I mean, before we go to recommendations, I want one more question for you. I mean,
1: how much do large states, including cyber superpowers like the U.S. and 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 China, do, how 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 much do they face serious threats from smaller non-state actors or from you know smaller state actors, North Korea or ISIS or yeah? Al- or Nusra I, I, I or... think
2: right now that the depends what type of attack we're talking about, right? The the, the ability to to cause widespread disruption or destruction, you know, it actually blow something up. I think that's probably limited to seven, maybe 10 states. Um, but we clearly see that, you know, nobody would have ever thought that North Korea had the capacity to be a cyber power. And it clearly can cause lots of disruption um, by by putting resources in it. Um, so I think the big states are still the, the most uh, capable. I think they clearly... Have lost um, some absolute power, mm-hmm. relatively relative power. There, are still the leaders, and we're, the the issue with non-state actors is both a proliferation of capabilities, uh, and spreading vulnerabilities. Like as more and more things are connected to the internet, the Internet of Things, right? So, by 2020, about 50 billion devices connected to the internet. That just creates a much larger space for 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 creating mayhem.
1: People have already hacked self-driving cars. Exactly. Um, Cars cars and and...
2: medical devices and uh, industrial control systems. All those things are vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Well,
1: the book is uh, The Hacked World Order, How Nations Fight, Trade, Maneuver, and Manipulate in the Digital Age. And I highly, highly recommend it. It's terrifically accessible, but it is no mere cursory introduction. It's actually quite in-depth, and that is a feat. So, Adam, thanks
2: again. Thanks for having me.
0: Before we get to recommendations, we want to remind our listeners that the Seneca podcast is powered by SubChina. Check out the app and subscribe to the newsletter at subchina.com. You'll get a daily dose of news uh, about China. You can also follow SubChina on Twitter at China news and on Facebook at Facebook.com subchina news. Jeremy, why don't you start us off with recommendations this week? Okay, I'm very happy to be completely nepotistic and uh, recommend uh, my wife's uh, new series of... This is only the eighth time you've done this. (laughs) 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 But but we're impressed. You must love her very dear. I do. So, well, no, this is new. Uh, She's been uh, recording a series of improvisations, uh, playing the guzheng in various locations, so far mostly in Nashville. Um, Mostly on your land there, right? Yeah. And uh, so you can see them on Facebook at facebook.com slash real Wufei Music uh, or Twitter, uh, and her username is Wufei Music. Um, I think I came up with that real Wufei didn't I? I think you did. did.
1: (laughs) Adam, what do you have for us this week?
2: So I'm uh, actually in the middle of an interesting history uh, about uh, military innovation and gunpowder in China. And it's fascinating because it... All of these weapons you have never heard of, and all these great Chinese names for like uh, the flying bomb and the exploding bomb, and and how uh, early gunpowder. He makes a distinction between explosive and non-explosive gunpowder. Expl- yeah. yeah, and gunpowder warfare and you know uh, ballistic warfare. So there's right, right. It's just incendiary, incendiaries, and, uh, and things shooting flames out of tubes and things like that. So it's a very fascinating discussion, and also a, kind of how we misunderstand how. You know, the argument has always been: well, the Chinese didn't develop it, and it was the West that you know took gunpowder and turned it into a military. Oh, that's not what I had heard. I heard that it was the the the, the who first used it. Yeah, so so he actually has all of these great battles of the of the Jurchen, but even uh, about how the 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 guns in China were much bigger, and it was only in the later period of military innovation that the the West kind of caught up. Um, and the book is
0: by a professor uh, of history at Emory. Okay. That that sounds like something Kaiser's going to read very yeah, soon. Of course, I will. <laughs> Ancient Chinese weapons. <laughs>
1: it's right up my alley. Um, I, I'm I'm going with history, actually, uh, indirectly through history. You guys all know Dan Carlin's Hardcore History, right? I mean, it, it's a it's one of my favorite podcasts. He does these you know ridiculously wonderful long monologuing histories in sort of the same vein as our our friend uh, Laszlo Montgomery. Uh, with his China History podcast. Uh, this guy, uh, Dan Carlin, a tremendous erudition, but also he's, he's, he's a very sensible guy. I'm always interested in the political views of people who are quite steeped in history and who have, you know, who bring real deep historical perspective to things. And so he's started a new podcast, a new ish podcast called Common Sense. And he takes on political issues. I've only actually heard a couple of them, but, uh, I mean, it's, it's hard to pin down his precise political I mean, where he sits on the American political spectrum but uh, it's you know he, he's got a, a pretty strong loathing for for the Donald which if he didn't I wouldn't be able to go on but he's the, the one that I listened to recently I, I thought that was really interesting he was he was uh, the argument that he made over the course of the podcast was how uh, how it is that you're you're basically di- just dismissed as an isolationist. In, in American political circles, if you even want to kind of raise the bar of intervention. I mean, if you want to sort of raise the bar at all for what constitutes a uh, core American national interests. And I've experienced this myself. I mean, every time I start you know, to, to, to talk about Barry Posen's book or when I start vlogging L- Lyle Goldstein's book or anything like that, then then immediately people sort of say, when did you turn into an isolationist? And, uh, uh, anyway, quite good. Uh, I know that everyone listening to this is sort of tautologically a podcast listener. So uh, check it out. Check it out. Uh, Adam, once again, I'm so glad you could make time. And we look forward to speaking with you again soon. The Seneca Podcast is powered by Subchina and is produced by Kaiser Guo, myself, and Jeremy Goldcorn. Thanks this week to the Council on Foreign Relations for use of their lovely studio. And, of course, to Anne La Cheng, to Amadeo Tumamillo, and to Soraya Darabi from Subchina. Drop us an email at sineca at subchina.com. Visit our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Seneca Podcast, and follow us on Twitter at Seneca Podcast. Thanks for listening and we will see you next week. Take care.